Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hi, this is Ryan Grimm, host of Deconstructed. And before we get started with today's show, I wanted to make a quick request. And it's actually relevant to the subject of today's podcast, which is an interview with former New York Times journalist and media entrepreneur Ben Smith, who was formerly a colleague of mine back at Politico when it launched. Then he was a competitor of mine when he was running BuzzFeed News and I was the DC bureau chief of the Huffington Post. He's now the co-founder of the news outlet Semaphore. He's going to join us to talk about his new book on the evolution of the news industry in the era of social media. That's also something I've spent a lot of time thinking about because I'm not only interested in creating a sustainable model for funding journalism, but how it's funded matters too, because that ultimately drives what it produces. And I want a model that pushes a news outlet to produce hard-hitting journalism that readers and listeners conclude they can't get anywhere else, and so they'll part with some of their hard-earned money not to buy it or pay for it, but to support its mission. Now, this podcast, as I'm sure you know, is a production of The Intercept, which was founded back in 2013 with a huge gift from the co-founder of eBay, Piero Midyar. That got us off the ground and established us as a force to be reckoned with in the world of journalism, but it was never meant to be a perpetual project of Omidyar. We're now in the middle of a multi-year transition away from reliance on a big donor and toward reliance on listeners and readers. And you as a listener to Deconstructed can play a big part in that. We don't put this podcast or any of our journalism behind a paywall, and we always want to keep it that way. What we need the most is for people to become sustaining monthly members so we have some idea of what we'll be able to spend. If just 10% of the people who listen to this podcast become members, we'd significantly surpass the goal for new members that we've set for the entire month of April for the whole organization. Now, to do that, go to theintercept.com slash give. This month, we're up against a big goal of adding 3,000 new recurring monthly donors, and I'm hoping you'll become one of them right now by going to theintercept.com slash give. Again, that's theintercept.com slash give. That's a special link set up for deconstructed listeners, so giving there sends a signal of support for this podcast, which we hope to keep going for years ahead. And now, here's my conversation with Ben Smith. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Ryan Grimm. We're joined today by Ben Smith, who is the author of the new book, Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. He's also the founder of the new outlet, Semaphore. Ben, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you for having me, Ryan. This was an exciting book for me to read. I can't tell if I can recommend it to other people because it's kind of so personal to me. It's like a journey through you know, much of my much of my own career. But I also think that anybody who wants to understand, you know, the transformation of our politics over the last 15 years really does have to understand the way that the media has been transformed and the role that kind of social media has played in that. So I really do recommend this to people. Ooh, I thought you were going to say that you couldn't recommend it. And I was like, what am I doing? I do. I do. I think, I think, I think people, (laughs) and it's, and it's a fun, and it's a fun read too. It's kind of a, it's kind of a romp through this nightmare hellscape uh, that that social media. Oh man, I should have gotten you to blurb it. That's amazing. There you you go. (laughs) A romp through a nightmare hellscape. Uh, So you're quite the entrepreneurial person. So I'm kind of curious, you know, what you would have done if you look back at say 2010, 2011, 
when Jonah Peretti reaches out to you and you eventually decide you're going to join BuzzFeed News. If you hadn't done BuzzFeed News, like how much longer do you think that you would have stayed at Politico? Where were you headed next? And for, for listeners who don't know, you and I were there together for a while. And it was this was the early days of Politico, which was, I guess, there was new media at the time. Yeah, Politico had kind of professionalized blogging. Mm -hmm. Like there were these new digital tools that allowed you to publish really fast to the internet, which people were mostly using. It's actually a little like Substack now. People were mostly using them to kind of opinionate. And then it was like, oh, you could run a real news organization in this thing. Yes, Substack is kind of reinventing blogs. Yeah, I mean, you and I, when we were at Politico, there was a period where Politico was sort of the center of the universe and hitting refre compulsively hitting refresh on Politico was what you did if you were obsessed with politics. Mm -hmm. And by 2011, I had gotten an engineer to install a little tracking code on my personal Politico blog without telling anyone so I could see my own traffic in real time. I saw that in the book and I was like, oh, wow, that's... Uh... Ryan Mannion, thank <laughs> you. And I could just see the traffic and the energy of the internet moving, as you could feel it too, away from these blogs and this website and toward Twitter in particular. And being told, you, oh, can you, can you write the big lead story for the website? Had started to feel like, can you write the big print story? Like, oh God, do I have to? Mm -hmm. As opposed to, wow, this is how to reach a lot of people. And so it was so appealing about what Jonah said to me was like, oh, I see the future. It's the social media thing. Come, you know, come do what you're sort of already doing, which is write stuff you're hoping will travel around on Twitter. You know, had that not come up? I don't know. I mean, I think there was another wave of news organizations, The Intercept included, coming. And I probably would have wound up at one of them. You know, you could, it's just hard for, you know, when you're sort of a reporter who just like wants people to read your stuff and is right at that kind of coalface of both gathering and distributing information, you're very, very sensitive to to the changes in the ecosystem. I mean, what am I saying? I obviously would just still be working for Politico. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or you or you wind up there again like so many former uh, Politico Yeah, exactly. Politico I would have done a stretch people. at the New York Times and then be back at Politico writing a column with, a, a, a guess, a joint column with, with Jonathan Martin, my old blogging partner at Politico. Another interesting counterfactual that, that rises up in the book is you actually rejected the offer for a moment and Jonah Peretti then reaches out to Nico Pitney, who is actually my former boss and colleague back at the Huffington Post, and asks if he would like uh, to do the job. I actually asked him about this last night after reading it in the book. He said he's thought about that a bunch, no regrets, but he, you know, it's, it's certainly something he, he's looked back on a lot. You then kind of changed your mind. Your wife was like, you're an idiot. Like, this is a really good opportunity. So you ended up taking it. But I wonder if Nico had taken over BuzzFeed News, BuzzFeed Politics instead, and brought more of a kind of upworthy-ish type of a style to it. How do you think the history of BuzzFeed un unfolds? You know, I think that in some ways, Nico was more of the internet than I was, or of the sort of big internet. Mm -hmm. I was sort of of the political internet. And I have thought about this. And I wonder, like, there's a version of BuzzFeed that does a bit less original reporting and spends less money that aggregates sort of the way HuffPost did, that Nico is very effective at, and that leans more into, sort of naturally leans into the progressive politics of that moment of the internet and becomes, you know, more sort of happily left-wing, basically. Whereas I was coming from a kind of straight news thing, and my sort of impulse with the news brand was to sort of resist some of, you know, what I saw as kind of the temptations of traffic, to keep it, you know, 
relative, like pretty neutral. And and I don't, you know, I think that's a to- a pretty different path. You know, the person who really brought this home to me was Steve Bannon. I went into Trump Tower in um, the summer of 2016, remembering this because I wrote about it in the book. Um, and he was just so perplexed as to why we hadn't turned into an all-out Bernie Sanders propaganda factory the way he had turned Breitbart into a Donald Trump propaganda factory. Not because he had any particular views on Bernie Sanders, but just because obviously Bernie Sanders gets more traffic than Hillary Clinton. You also write in the book that you noticed that Hillary Clinton was drawing an intense amount of negative energy. How much did you understand in real time, like what you were watching kind of unfold in the data and how much of it makes sense to you now in hindsight? Much more in hindsight. I mean, I do think that we we had this sort of access to this Facebook data until they cut it off because I think it was because it was embarrassing to them that showed that like this Donald Trump thing was really real. Like this wasn't some television illusion. People on Facebook, you know, it was basically meant to be a tracker of which primary candidate um, people were talking about, and you know, in the different states, the only person anyone was talking about was Donald Trump, and everything else was a rounding error. And that was, at the time, to us, kind of surprising. This is the time that the kind of progressive dominance on social media is starting to wane, and Facebook is starting to get taken over by the element that now, you know, has thoroughly colonized Facebook. And you write in the book about this moment where it appears like, reading the way you report it, that Jonah kind of effectively, you know, knifed that site that I just mentioned earlier, Upworthy, which was this news outlet that kind of sprang out of uh, Move On, and people will probably remember it's really, you know, you know, happy type of clickbaity headlines like a racist guy said this to a kid and you won't believe how he shut him down. Things that make you feel good about the world. And it was one of the fastest growing, maybe the fastest growing media company in the history of the internet, which wasn't very long at that point, but was also extremely vulnerable to getting killed by Facebook because it was all of its traffic dependent on Facebook and all of its traffic was based on tricks, you know, to get, you know, Facebook users to to share it. And Jonah then basically goes to Facebook and says, you know, look at all of this clickbait stuff they're doing with this, what they call a curiosity gap. They're not really telling you what's in the story. You have to click, which is great for the people that click, but the 95% that go past don't get any any benefit out of that. They you know they tweak that algorithm and Upworthy basically just implodes overnight. And so I'm, I'm wondering, did Facebook drive progressives off the site, or did something just change about the world that made Facebook a less you know fun and useful place for progressives to be? Like they they did get rid of the Upworthy, but they also got rid of everybody on the left. I mean, it's it's sort of so hard to put your head back into this moment when you know when. Huffington Post is founded in 04 to sort of help elect a Democrat in 08. Mm-hmm. You know, the HuffPost team loves Obama for a variety of reasons, including that he drives a lot of traffic. You know, it's kind of all in for him, helps him win the primary, helps him win the election. Facebook is sort of starting to grow up there. And Obama visits Facebook as a company. It's obviously, without goes without saying, a young progressive force that's aligned with the Democratic Party and with Barack Obama. I mean, I think mostly what happened was like our parents got on the internet, mm-hmm. you know? Like I think the main thing that happened to f- on Facebook is that it was initially a bunch of college kids who had the politics of college kids, and then it was everyone in America who had the politics of everyone in America. And it sort of 
began to skew older and more conservative. I mean, I think that's the biggest picture. I mean, the, the, but certainly, yeah, I mean, Jonah was talking to them. Upworthy was a competitor. And Upworthy was doing a thing that I think Jonah would not let us do because he was like, Facebook is going to kill this because they're going to see it as a technical trick, which is, you won't believe what's in this video, but you have to click, Mm -hmm. which is pretty spammy. But I think they wouldn't be wrong to feel kind of surprised that he was mentioning this to to newsfeed executives. Speaking of tricks, like, it makes you wonder about, you know, BuzzFeed as well. As you think back about it, like, do you think it was, or at least on the news side, like, always doomed? Like, Like, you write in the book that, you basically paid people, not BuzzFeed News, but let's say BuzzFeed more generally. It pays people to kind of find the most viral things happening online, and it repackages them, serves them back to the internet. And at some point, it feels like the algorithm is going to figure out a way to cut out the middleman. Like it's going to figure out what the most viral thing is and put those things in between. It doesn't need people, you know, people, actual human beings at BuzzFeed doing that for them. That feels obvious in hindsight. What's your sense on what the place is for something like this? You know, the challenge for BuzzFeed and for its generation of companies was that, you know, the insight that we were built on was that there was this new thing called social media coming. People were going to be opening their desktop computers, going to Facebook.com, Twitter.com, and looking at that first, not at your website first. And so then the challenge for publishers, how do I get my stuff into Facebook.com and Twitter.com? And our theory was that this was like the birth of cable. These were the new pipes and somebody was going to be CNN, and somebody was going to be MTV, and somebody was going to be Fox, and somebody was going to be VH1, but there was going to be a set of essentially content channels running through these new pipes. And in fact, like the chairman of both HuffPost and BuzzFeed, Kenny Lehrer, had been there at the birth of MTV. And I think that really influenced their vision a lot. And then what turned out was, you know, you know, what is it? It's, it's, we're 40 years into cable, and cable is still there. And that proved durable and consumers kept watching it. You know, these social media pipes are basically going away. There are a lot of mistakes we made, a lot of tactical and strategic mistakes. But we also always knew we had this. I mean, I'm sure it's an investor decks that our biggest dependency was on these social media platforms. You know, consumers have moved away from Facebook. Facebook has also moved away from news for a variety of reasons and from links from the internet, partly to keep consumers on their platform, as you know, and not let them not let them go to go somewhere else. Um, and Twitter, you know, similarly is in decline. That thesis just didn't turn out to be true. And so all these companies are left kind of scrambling to find new pipes for their content. That's pretty hard. Where do you find the new pipes? Like as, as somebody who has been thinking about this your, your entire career, back to, you know, city coverage to now. You know, I learned a lot from the people I worked with at BuzzFeed about this, but you, know, you sort of have to think about, you know, what do people want? Where are people? And, you know, in the beginning of our careers, Ryan, it was like, the maddening thing was that you were stuck with like Newsweek and like these sort of monopoly voices and maybe you could get an alt weekly, but like if only you could read like the British and European press and like much less like independent voices who just like didn't buy the premise of the Iraq war particularly. You know, these were sort of hard to find. And so then like this explosion of new voices to sort of like counter this sort of discredited post-Iraq mainstream media was incredibly vibrant and rewarding and people loved it. And it's like, wow, I can just like get everything everywhere all at once. But now we're like, you know what? People are really sick of that. That has curdled and turned toxic and people hate it. And they feel ma- totally overwhelmed by just the amount of shit that is coming in. And simultaneously, like kind of don't know what to trust. So, I mean, it's not like the people have gone away or changed or been, re- and it was always people. Like, you know, it was never, 
it was never technical. Like, you know, we're not in a technical profession. Right. It was always delivering information to people who were interested. But I do think now it's like what we're trying to do is take great reporters who you can develop a relationship with, have them deliver the news in a very kind of deliberately transparent way where you say, like, here's, here's what I know. Here's my opinion on it. Here's maybe somebody who disagrees with me. You know, and then also to be pretty, again, deliberate about saying, and by the way, here are some other sources that are kind of coming from a different place on the same thing. And to put all that together, basically, because that's, it feels like in this moment of basically reacting to the end of the last era, that that's, that's what's most useful to people. As these, like, social pipes get closed off, I wonder if the old platforms like, you know, HuffPost and Drudge are going to start to see a little bit of a rebound, that people start you know, heading back directly to them for... You know, Max Tani um, at Semaphore did a story this week that suggested to me that that is happening. Um, apparently, you know, this is sort of an interesting measure. Fox News has always been a huge Facebook publisher. Mm-hmm. Their Facebook traffic, and I think it has a lot of overlap at this point with the demographic of the people who are on Facebook, like older, more conservative people, they have seen their homepage traffic go up. I find the Drudge Report relevant again. Mm-hmm. I now sometimes go there just to find out what's happening because Twitter doesn't perform that service anymore. And then the most interesting thing, I think probably for both of us, is that when Jonah, you know, like in this, was, you know, critically kind of personally awful for me, shut down BuzzFeed News, he decided to keep Huffington Post going, which he now also owns, because Huffington Post's homepage remained powerful and big. And BuzzFeed News had never really developed a homepage. I noticed that line in the in his statement that said that the Huffington Post is profitable, and it was kind of delightful to see him say that. It made me think back to kind of the early days when I got there. I got there right after yeah. the 2008 election, and I remember for the first, at least for the first couple of years, on weekends in particular, what we called our splash, you know, the, which is the main story on the very top, whatever story was up there would get something like minimum, say, 30,000 comments on it. But if you actually went into the comments, they weren't people talking about the article. It was the chat room. Yeah. People on weekends just all kind of agreed, Yeah. I'll see you for here Friday night, Saturday night, maybe with a six-pack of beer next to their laptop, just chatting away. It was a social platform. And it was a social platform. I was furious about this, but I was not the kind of person in, in a room to make this decision. We killed our comment section at some point basically at the behest of, of Facebook. Mm. You know, Facebook came in and said, you know, why don't you just have Facebook comments at the mm. bottom? And yeah. then we promise we'll send a little extra traffic, then you don't have to worry about all the mm-hmm. all the libelous behavior going on in your Yeah, which your was expensive sections. and time-consuming to moderate. Mm-hmm. Right, and so that entire community of millions of people just overnight was just, was just sent packing. And so maybe I could find it, but around... Tw- Middle of 2016, I gave a, a presentation at one of our little offsite retreats about what we're going to do in the future. I had all of these different graphs showing that, yes, like social is exploding. That's where all of our traffic is coming from, but it, it can't last and they're going to completely control our fate. Wow. You, you were the guy who saw the future. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't la- I didn't last much longer. <laughs> and I want to go back and find that, that presentation because I basically, I think, was suggesting Substack. I was saying, like, we need to make a community again. Like mm-hmm. we need to bring back that sense of community. And for all of our bloggers say like, look, you can continue to blog, but we're not going to call them blogs anymore. You can write and you can email it then out to your friends. 
but the deal is then we're, you, you know, we're also going to like have access to these emails or we can sell ads on them or whatever. Like it, you're, you're building a gigantic ecosystem of mostly through email, which big tech will figure out a way to kind of algorithm away, but it's going to take a lot longer. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. With Mint Mobile, you get great wireless service at a fraction of the cost of other providers. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills and unexpected overages. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash deconstructed. That's mintmobile.com slash deconstructed. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash deconstructed. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I saw in the book you mentioned that around this time you guys started looking at post-social media plays like newsletters and other things, but didn't move fast enough. Am I reading that right? Or what, what were you thinking around this, around that time? You know, I mean, I think we always knew that we were too dependent on Facebook. You know, it felt like that was the core of our strength. And it's really hard to play away from your strengths, really hard to be have this unbelievable funnel of audience and money and sort of attention and to say, hey, we should hedge. The one place we did that successfully was we, in our food business, and <laughs> people remember Tasty, mm-hmm. which continues to exist, which blew up on Facebook. And I think we realized like, oh, we've got to find ways to move this audience to YouTube, to the website, to other places. And I do think that you know, ultimately, if we, if you know, if one in a hundred thousand of the Facebook visitors had been converted to a newsletter subscriber, we would have had a huge newsletter business. You know, assuming we were able to give people, you know, something they really wanted in a newsletter, which is pretty different from what you might want on Facebook too. The, mm-hmm. I mean, BuzzFeed was very, I think, successful publishers in social media were very rooted in thinking about, well, what do people want to share, and that may not be what what you want to get in your newsletters. And speaking of video, and not surprisingly, since you're you know, your career is in print journalism. The book doesn't get into video much. Unless I miss it, I don't think you go in on the the Facebook kind of driven pivot to video. No, I wrote about it a bit. I, I mean, you know, it's funny. BuzzFeed was really was 
I think, and it, when it was strong, more sophisticated than other publishers on this stuff. And I mean, it didn't just pivot to video, build a huge video business of very inexpensively produced videos that people wanted to watch. And the thing that I think we were tuned into that some publishers fell down on was just that like, you got in these, these videos, it's not, you can't go producing TV. The economics don't work. If you can produce videos extremely cheaply and at their best, they were like, you know, there was a great one of like Chinese immigrants trying American Chinese food for the first time. That was a big genre, if you remember. Mexicans try American snacks. Americans <laughs> try. This is. I think yeah. it's you know you have a table and you got a few people and it's like highly entertaining and it's so inexpensive because the economics of digital media are so lean. And the problem in news and news video is just more expensive. You have to check facts, for instance. That's expensive. And so we were very, we did not do a lot of news video because it was too, for that reason. Where do you see YouTube in the evolution of all of, all of this stuff? And how do you think about video and with, with regard to Semaphore? I mean, YouTube, I think, and all these platforms, they use the word creator a lot. They love that word because it, it's sort of the way Uber uses driver. Like Uber doesn't want to deal with fleets. They want to deal with atomized individuals. Right. I mean, you may know a little bit about this, Ryan, but I, I think that there's more leverage in groups of people than in individuals. <laughs> a little bit. And I think, you know, whether that's a union or a company or a cartel, like it's these platforms are seeking and structuring forms of economic organization where there is very difficult to organize and trying to kill out and trying to kill the middlemen, see media companies as middlemen. And so the economics really favor an individual creator. You know, that said, you know, if you do really good work that's aligned with journalism people love, like Joe Posner did at Vox in particular and with Explained, you can do interesting work and build a big audience on YouTube and maybe, and you're not going to make a ton of money there, but maybe you'll break even. And then you can take that to, to as he did, Netflix and really do something really interesting. And he's now at Semaphore and we're, you know, experimenting in a, in a pretty careful way with video. Because ultimately, you know, TikTok is the platform of the moment and is, and, and a lot of people are getting news from short video. And, you know, it's, it is really, it's a genuine place consumers are getting news, but it's also a very difficult place for publishers to make money. And so we're being really careful. One of the great moments of the book, you've got this scene out in Facebook's headquarters after the legendary dress story, which everybody will remember. Back in 2015. It actually was a a user, a reader of BuzzFeed in the sweet early internet days of BuzzFeed's Tumblr had messaged us and said, I took this picture at a wedding and I can't figure out what color this dress is. That's right. And then she didn't originally think there was anything to it, but then she shows it to people at work, which actually shows the value um, if there are corporate executives out there demanding that their their worker bees come back to the hive. This is a moment where actually having people in the same space – paid off, although I suppose you could just message it around if you needed to. But yeah, so she asks people in the office, what color is this? And half of them see it one color, half of them see it the other. Next thing you know, you know, how many people ended up looking at that post? Tens of millions, tens of millions. Right. And then so Jonah's out at Facebook and he's talking to uh, somebody from the kind of runs the newsfeed or is involved with the newsfeed. And they say to Jonah, that was really fascinating. How often do you think something like that ought to be allowed to happen. And, and Jonah's kind of taken aback, as kind of I was when I was reading it, like, like, who do you think you are to ask that question, like, allowed to happen? Like, it shouldn't be up to you, but of course it is up to them. It's their platform. And sure enough, 
as you write, that kind of was the last, you describe it as the last innocent day on the internet, sort of was the last time that was allowed to happen. Uh, What's Facebook thinking there in trying to shut down what from other people's perspective is like a massive success? You know, I think they were starting to see that that they were losing control of the platform and, and they were starting to be criticized. It was, it was 2015 for a new kind of kind of conf- nasty confrontational politics that was all over Facebook. And I'm sure they found the dress harmless, but I do think seeing like, huh, this single thing can just reach everybody in the world instantly and maybe it won't next time be so harmless. I mean, I, I, it might have been, it was probably a little worrisome. Do you think they regret any decisions they made as a result of that? Or do you think that they feel like those are the only choices they had to like take control in a way that they hadn't before? I think what people wanted from them changed. Like they're a company trying to sell ads and are hearing, you know, everywhere that people hate all the toxic politics on their website and all that. And, and everyone's screaming at them and screaming at each other about news and they, kind of try to fix it or think they're trying to fix it to in a way that then makes it way worse where basically like you post something on it's called they introduce this metric called meaningful social engagement that's meant to be like well if you really engage with a piece of content that's something people should see because it's meaningful and so which but what that actually means is that like you post a Donald Trump meme and then I comment kill yourself 17 times in a row and it's like wow that was some meaningful social engagement let's show this to everyone and so like I do think that their just withdrawal from news and politics makes a certain amount of sense if you're them. And when you look back at this and you, you've been thinking about it for a couple of years now, are, are, there, are there decisions that people could have made differently that change how this unfolds? Or was this all baked in from the beginning that if you're going to build the entire thing on the back of engagement, the thing that gets people engaging is is toxicity and that's what we're going to get. No, I think, I mean, I know, I, I just, I think that there were technical decisions that, that did shape the sort of culture of Facebook, for sure. I mean, also, you know, the sense in which it was totally top down and undemocratic. Like, I think if you look at what I think if you think it through is obviously the most successful social network in history, which is Reddit. You know, it has this very kind of democratic structure in which mods who are unpaid, ordinary you know, weirdos like us have a lot of power. It's very decentralized power. They are able to change with the times. They're not, you know, they're in different parts of it can operate a bit differently. I do think these Silicon Valley executives are very ideological and, you know, want to win arguments in a way. And like that's, and culture changes, right? Something that was appropriate or interesting or felt acceptable at one point, maybe totally repellent three years later. And you just, and you, that's not a sort of, ideological decision that's just sort of cultural change i think more broadly with social networks the you know the reason they're not like cable wires they're more like bars or clubs like you go there because your friends are there and then at some point your friends go somewhere else and you go somewhere else and if they say oh we've installed a new sound system you're not going to go back like it's just things change to back up you, you talk about how drudge really changed the game for at least the more clever journalists. You don't mention yourself, but people like you and I, you know, knew that there were outlets like Huffington Post or Drudge and that... Yeah, I was emailing your colleague Whitney all the time to try to get links on the front page of Huffington Post. Exactly. I saw you said in the book that certain journalists knew the uh, email address of the front page <laughs> editor at the Huffington Post. I'm like, yeah, certain journalists, including the author, yeah. 
of, of this book. But also, back when I was at Politico, I remember when, and you write about this in your book, Andrew Breitbart uh, was in charge of, during the day, posting links uh, on Drudge. And he would have his little instant messenger green light up there. I think it was BMAS, if I'm remembering right, was his little mm, – That sounds right. Was his name. And it lasted for years after his death. Yeah. And it, would, it stayed green. Do you remember that? Oh, I don't remember that. That's weird. It, it was very eerie because uh, it, it yeah. kept popping up. But if I had a story that I thought that Drudge would be interested in, I would, I would send it over that way. And so mm. – but as I think about it, the stories that I would have thought then – that Drudge was interested in are still the exact same kinds of stories that I think will traffic well on social, whether it's Huffington Post or social media. You know, the, there's some interests that you know that, you know, say Drudge might have that are peculiar to him or that Whitney over at HuffPost might have that are peculiar to him. But in general, you kind of know, you know what clicks. So how do you think about that today as compared to 2007, 2008? I mean, I you know, a lot of what we're doing is sending out newsletters. And a lot of what I think about is, you know, what's interesting to the audience of these newsletters, right, who we're reaching directly. But the Drudge Report remains a big part of the internet, kind of amazingly. And Twitter, a diminishing one. But I think some of those vestigial blogger reflexes still work, but it's a pretty changed world. In your interview the other day with, uh, with Kara Swisher, you guys talked a little bit about you know, BuzzFeed News uh, shutting down. And, and you mentioned that the kind of unionization process at BuzzFeed News and the, the, the fight over who's going to be in the unit, who's not, and the contract negotiations had resulted in a level of, I don't know if the word is animosity, but an intense relationship between kind of the, the management and the staff that may have even factored into the final decision. Do you, th- like, do you think that's right? Do you think that as you're seeing these media companies on the tail end of the, of the social media arc, is the relationship between kind of managers, editors, top editors, and, and unions you know, fundamentally kind of broken at this point? I don't know. It's, I mean, it just it, like these things are always easier when in times of plenty. I mean, I think, I, you know, the New York Times, there's a very bitter conflict right now between management and labor, essentially over how to distribute the profits of a successful enterprise, which, you know, I mean, it would be nice if it was less bitter, but it's fundamentally an adversarial process. And, and that's a great high-class problem to have. Unions mad that the executives are getting big bonuses. The executives are worried about building, and you know they'd like to use the money for something other than you know raising the minimum salary. Yeah, I mean this is like a healthy debate from a healthy company. I mean I think when you know when things are bad, you're you know and you're sort of arguing over you know you're you're glad you have a union because it extends your severance, but ultimately like it doesn't change the economic the underlying economic realities. Last question, let you go. Did anything change for you in your understanding of the story that you lived uh, as you went back and kind of reported it, researched it, and wrote it? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that really surprised me was that, you know, I came up in, in, in a digital world that saw itself and I think was seen as basically progressive and of the left. I was genuinely surprised in reporting it out to see the extent to which the people who created the sort of populist right were just there the whole time. The guy who created 4chan, who's not himself a conservative, I don't think, but who created that platform, worked out of BuzzFeed's office. Andrew Breitbart co-founded HuffPost. Bannon wanders through HuffPost at some point and is kind of makes a study of it. You know, Benny Johnson, Baked Alaska. Like, I think 
the extent to which like we thought we were building this one kind of thing and that actually the sort of main characters in the story were those other people <laughs> was a surprise for me. Right, the Andrew Breitbart who was dismissed and just as this like just slovenly kind of weirdo in the in the Huffington Post office, you know, goes off and produces Breitbart, which has an incredible lasting legacy. Yeah, you're right. It's it was all there. Do you how much of that do you think is a coincidence? And how much of that do you think is actually revealing about some of the the structures and character of that early internet? Um, I mean, I think we were totally kind of like, didn't really, had not entirely thought through what we were doing. <laughs> um, but I do think that ultimately, like, the internet was going to swallow everything, right? And and, and they, it, it wasn't, it had been in sort of this niche space. And I think, you know, when ultimately, like, the big story of the 2010s is this new right-wing populism, it was totally intertwined. I don't think it caused or was caused by, in some, like, super simple way, social media, but it was totally intertwined with it and dominated it. Well, Ben, thanks so much. And again, for folks, the book is called Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. And congrats on the book. Hey, thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. That was Ben Smith, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show is mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. Want to give us additional feedback? Email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you soon. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.